Hi, everyone. It's Andy. And Justin. And we're back with a very special bonus episode of Project 7. Throughout Project 7's six-week run, we produce bonus episodes for the members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. Those fine folks whose contributions help make our work possible. And in those episodes, Justin and I went even deeper with some of the main characters in the show. We talked to each other about what we took away from each week. And we were joined by some of the people who helped create Project 7. We also had conversations with people you didn't get a chance to hear from at all during the series, like the guest who's going to join me here in just a minute. Reporter Michael Jamison covered the Flathead Valley in the late 1990s and early 2000s for the Missoulian and watched David Berger go from a loudmouth nobody to a major influencer whose message was co-opted as part of the still ongoing battle between conservationists, government regulators, and the timber industry in northwest Montana. Michael has some really unique insights and delves into some really interesting parts of the story that we just didn't get a chance to get into in Project 7. If you're not an Editor's Club member and haven't heard this yet, I think it's a conversation you're really going to enjoy. So thank you so much for subscribing, for downloading, and for listening to all of Project 7. If you have enjoyed the show, leave us a rating, a review, or tell a friend to subscribe and listen. And stay subscribed to this feed because we might have even more bonus episodes to come And this will be the first place to hear about any new work that we produce in the future. And lastly, if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, we would love to hear from you. Email us at project7 at flatheadbeacon.com. That's project, the numeral seven, at flatheadbeacon.com. Now, here's Justin with Michael Jamison. When was the first time you heard of David Berger? I, I think the first time I met David Berger was uh, he was sort of a bit player in some of the community conversations that were happening around, but mostly around natural resources, um, where the community intersects with the federal government around federal lands. Some of those rallies and gatherings overlapped into a bit of the um, the crowd at that time, the militia crowd that was anti-government. And um, D- David was a fixture at a, in a lot of those spaces. I think most people's direct connection in this area then and now to the federal government was through federal lands and federal land management. And that, you know, that's where the federal government has the highest profile in people's lives. And when timber harvest was declining on those federal lands, for lots of reasons, I mean, it's a, it's a global commodity. There were economic recessions in the Pacific Rim. There were imports of riata pine from Venezuela. There were tree farms in the American Southwest. There were a lot of things that were happening that were driving it, environmental rules, so on and so forth. But when those timber harvests declined on the federal lands, a lot of the loggers, a lot of the mill workers found themselves out of work. And it was pretty easy to blame the Fed. And, and so there were a lot of people frustrated with the federal government at that time, locally, and then there were some imports, um, some people who had moved into the area from North Idaho, from Washington State, uh, who brought with them a real anti-government sentiment, um, part of the militia movement. And those folks, some of them had ties to that racist element, that white power element from North Idaho. There was a synergy between the anti-government militias and those folks. And so it, there were there were these synergies of activism, I guess, that brought people together that might not otherwise have come together. And a lot of those rallies around 
federal lands around what they felt was um, a federal government putting people out of work and, and controlling uh, their lives from Washington, D.C., rather than allowing locals control. Yeah, there were a lot of rallies. There were a lot of gatherings. Uh, there was a lot of discontent. And Dave was, um, Dave Berger was definitely a bit player who increasingly gravitated toward the center of those conversations. And I mean, did you, when, did you ever have any, do any interviews with David uh, in, in that context? Um, not with David per se. He wasn't, he wasn't that vocal leader who was out there. Uh, David was an interesting guy. I mean, he was not, he's an interesting person to imagine becoming, you know, the figurehead, I guess, of, of this Project 7 because he was not charismatic. He, he, he was not well-spoken. Uh, he did not inspire a crowd. So you'd run into David in these places and, you know, he, he would have his say, but he, as a reporter, he was never one you gravitated to thinking this is the leader. This is the articulate voice of the movement. This is the person who can speak for others. That, that wasn't, that wasn't his space. When did you sort of learn that there was another half to David with this project seven and this, this sort of homegrown militia? So Jim DuPont, who was sheriff at the time, was, I wouldn't call him a friend, but, you know, we were professional colleagues. He, he was the official and I was the reporter, but we had a lot of respect for one another, I think. Jim was kind enough often to give me bits and pieces of stories so that I would know what was going on in the background to, to kind of inform my reporting so, so that I wasn't getting it wrong for lack of a full understanding. With, and he did so knowing that I wouldn't publish, right? That, that this, these were just conversations between us and it would help me to prepare stories. It would help me to understand the background. It would help me to place the facts he was providing me into a, a bigger context so that the stories were, were more accurate and more full. So J Jim and I had some very lengthy off-the-record conversations pretty early on, well in advance of the Project 7 stories hitting hitting the newspaper they, they had been investigating for a while they knew they had a problem they weren't sure of the scope of the problem but jim dupont the sheriff at the time really put dave at the center of those stories pretty early on it was just this tantalizing rumor that dupont and others were chasing down i mean you have to understand the full context of what this was mm -hmm. that that whole time frame you know there was i, I still remember the tax day protests over outside of Libby where a whole bunch of these anti-government folks were, they were going to rally against federal taxation and so forth. And they made a big noise. And, and I, as I recall, the federal buildings, post office, forest service, things like that over in Libya actually closed for the day of the rally because they were, they were concerned about violence. And so we all went over as reporters. It was actually a little bit pitiful in the end. It was this sad little highway rest stop outside of Libby, between Libby and Troy, a pitiful little crowd. There were actually more reporters than there were protesters. <laughs> you know, the bark was actually way more than the bite. But you'd show up at these things. You know, this was the, I guess what I'm trying to do is explain the atmosphere, that the noise that these folks were making uh, was creating enough fear that people were closing down federal buildings, you know, out of concern that there might, there might be some kind of violence during these rallies. and. It was a lot louder than their action, but you never knew, you never knew which of these folks making the noise had the capacity to push it over an edge and make it real. 
So when, when Jim DuPont and others started first hearing the whispers that there was a group of people who, you know, somehow had some ill intent toward local officials that, you know, might be amassing a plan. Um, we re nobody really knew what to make of it. Is it just more noise? Is it, is it just another one of these tax day protests where 15 guys will stand in the back of their shout trucks and shout? Or, or is, it, is it, did one of these guys finally actually have the guts to you know, start building what he's been talking about building? And I think most folks figured it was more the former than the latter. And so we never knew, you, never, you just never knew how seriously to take any of it, right? When, when does all the, the venting and the frustration, all the vitriol of the pretty ugly public discourse, you know, when does that all become something more than just sort of getting it off your chest? When does it become someone taking action? And at that point, there hadn't been a lot of that someone taking action. It had mostly just been a lot of talk. And so when, when DuPont started telling me that they thought they were onto something interesting, I don't think he knew how to assess the risk. And, and I certainly didn't. So no one paid a whole lot of attention, I think, in, until, until the arrests were made. And at that point, of course, the sheriff's department had clamped down pretty tightly. They weren't sharing uh, anything. Once, once, they, once they were onto a, a source with, a, with direct knowledge, and once they were actually building out a plan to investigate and raid buildings and make arrests and so forth, that, you know, at that point, there wasn't any information coming out of the sheriff's department as, as is appropriate, right? They were, right. they were doing their jobs and we would learn about it after the fact. So when did you come to learn about, uh, you know, the standoff west of town where, where David got arrested? Was that something you knew as it was happening or is that something you learned later? You know, there was, uh, um, that's an interesting question. The reporting of it, the, the actual, you know, interviewing, learning about the details came later. I had a, I had a friend who was in the, um, the deputy ranks at the time who actually gave a call. This was the day of landlines who actually gave a call at my house and said that um, there was this thing happening. Um, and I didn't know it was Burgert and, and, and I didn't know anything else, but it sounded like it was, it was real. And I didn't tie it frankly to this whole notion of a militia and of attacks on public figures or, or anything that, that had been discussed in confidence prior it was just a standoff. And so I had had this call that there was a standoff happening. And, you know, I mean, as a reporter, that's an interesting thing, but that's not, you know, it's not stop the presses time. It's not like get out of bed and race down there. So it was like, yeah, thanks for the tip. And then it was only later after it was done and DuPont went public with what had really happened that we understood the reality of what had gone down that evening and the, and the weight of it, you know, that it wasn't, it wasn't just uh your average domestic dispute that turned into a standoff sort of situation that this actually, this actually had some depth to it. As Jim DuPont released more information, as the, the picture became more clear, what were those next few days like? Was it, was sort of the, the gravity of the situation sort of apparent pretty quickly or uh, was it sort of something that everyone realized in fits and spurts that this was, was sort of a bigger deal? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, that was such an interesting time because, again, there was such rhetoric, right? You had, you had guys like John Stokes on the radio calling conservationists Nazis and burning green swastikas on the Earth Day. And, you know, the heat of the rhetoric was really high. 
And for someone like Dave Bergert, who was clearly unstable to begin with, that, that heat was, was like a match in a drought dried grass field, you know, it, it, it got him going, but, but knowing a little bit of Dave and knowing a little bit about, like I said, how, how it was difficult to separate the rhetoric from the real, um, the whole thing, it just seems so Mickey Mouse. It was just a clown show. And I, I mean, I knew Tom Esch, county attorney, you know, Frank Garner, chief of police in Kalispell, Jim DuPont, sheriff of Flathead County. I knew those guys pretty well. And um, they, are, they were a, a moderate crowd, a very reasonable crowd, um, a crowd with a lot of integrity, um, high quality human beings. And, and then you flip it on its head and you look at the other crew, you know, Dave Berger and Chesham and Tracy. And I, it was just, there was such an alarming gulf, I guess, between, between the professionalism on the one side of this equation and sort of this absolute amor, amateurishness on, on the other. And, it was difficult to really get your brain around what was happening. Like, could this even possibly be real? There were some folks in the Valley who I could imagine pulling off something like project seven and that would kind of, you know, it would really raise your eyebrow and worry you because they're, they're capable people. This wasn't that crew. And so I, you know, when you first hear about it and you, you start getting the list of names and who's who and who the players are, you, it was just, and, and then you look at the plan and the absurdity of the plan that, that this notion that somehow they're going to spark this civil war, that these dominoes are going to fall uh, in a way as to expose this grand conspiracy. It was really hard to know what to make of it. I mean, back to this notion of the bark being worse than the bite with these guys, you, you just had to wonder how much of it was real. And, and then they go in, of course, and they find machine guns and body armor and bulletproof vests and explosives and silencers and booby traps and 30 rounds of 30,000 rounds of ammunition. And you're like, wow, like <laughs> these guys, these guys were for real. I remember DuPont saying something about last I heard it didn't take 30,000 rounds of ammo to kill a turkey. You know, he had such a, a way about him. Like, like when he says something like that, it takes the edge off the seriousness, right? It just, it, it just exposes the, the amateur nature of the effort. And so the way Jim approached it, Jim DuPont approached it, he was, he was certainly taking it seriously. Like these folks were, were up to no good, but something about his good old boy way of talking about it and knowing the players and seeing the absurdity of, of their plans. You really, as a reporter, you, it was difficult to know how to play it. In the end, you just had to play it straight. You know, you had, you had to take it as if it were, it's just flat out real that they were actually going to go through with this because all the evidence pointed to it. And so I guess that was the moment when we realized, okay, so some of that heat, some of that rhetoric, some of that bark, there were a few people unstable enough to try to turn it into uh, to action. What do you think happened to David? Where, where do you think David is today? You know, speculation's so hard. Who knows? He was such a gadfly. I think it would be very hard for a guy like David to lay low for a long time. You know, um, I, I've been uh, listening uh, pretty regularly to this podcast that you're producing. 
it's quite brilliant by the way really enjoyed it (laughs) um and um you know i've heard folks say that you know the cadaver dogs were hitting on a site in the woods not far from the shootout uh i've heard folks talk about perhaps a run to canada where he had some contacts I, i mean it's all possible right i i i have a difficult time thinking thinking David could keep his mouth closed and keep himself out of uh, the fray for a decade. Um, But I've been wrong about a lot more things in my life than I've been right about. So I suspect, well, I just, I just, I just don't know. It's just, it's too hard to know. I mean, I will say this, it was so interesting. I do think that um, that whole era which we've really been talking about here, sort of the story within the story within the story, right? You have, you, you, you have a, an economic downturn on the Pacific Rim that, that coincides with a moment of hostile takeovers of publicly held companies um, in which a lot of the timber companies start to liquidate their timber and turn it into cash to guard against takeover. At the same time, that's happening. You have imports, cheap lumber imports coming from um, international sources. You have domestic tree farms in the southeast growing trees way faster than we can here. The Forest Service diminishing their cut in large part in response to the liquidation of the private land cut. You have environmental rules and regulations and Dangerous Species Act and so forth driving the stumpage price up. So you have all these things happening. You have an anger at the federal government because jobs in the federal forests are diminishing. You have the, the um, introduction of the <clears throat> anti-government militia movement into this corner of the state um, at the same time. All, all of this that was happening that sort of created a universe in which Project 7 was possible. It, in the end, I, I, it's such an interesting thing because there was a time when the Dave Bergerts of the world, the John Stokes of the world, had been granted a seat at the table. You know, they're sitting there in these meetings talking about federal land management and they're sitting next to the forest supervisor and they're sitting next to the, the president of the chamber of commerce. They, they, they had legitimate stake at the table as, as a reasonable and coherent voice. And then the more shrill that voice became, um, the more green swastikas got burned on Earth Day and, you know, conservationists got called Nazis, <laughs> the more the news wrote about Project 7 and these guys arming themselves, the more all that happened, the more the mainstream sort of backed away and said, yeah, um, I'm, that's not really my bag, right? I, I, I mean, I'm the president of the Chamber of Commerce and I'm interested in our federal forest management because it affects the jobs and the businesses in this community. but I don't really hold truck with um, 30,000 rounds of ammunition and a list of uh, people you're going to kill. And so it, through their actions, they ultimately exposed themselves as pretty radical people and marginalized themselves and basically um, took themselves out of circulation in terms of being legitimate members of the community having a conversation about these things. And the result was that the conversation turned and instead of the us against them, 
anger, people started pivoting towards a more, I guess, positive and constructive conversation. You know, once that fire burned itself out and reasonable people ran from the flames, it sort of opened a landscape where the more moderate voices could debate and discuss and disagree with, with a degree of safety and civility. And I, I think it led to, directly led to a lot of community solutions, including those that have emerged since, you know, these new relationships between community leaders and the business community and local federal land managers and, and, um, and conservationists. I mean, I look at like the Whitefish Range Partnership and our ability as conservationists to work with the really good folks up at Stoltz Lumber, as well as uh, the citizens of the North Fork and the Montana Logging Association and the backcountry horsemen, backcountry hunters and anglers. I mean, we, we all have really different perspectives, um, but we all understand that we've got to work together and figure this stuff out. And I actually think that it's sort of required Dave Bergert and Project 7 and some of the more extreme elements to get us to this point we're at now. Because that was the moment when a lot of people threw up their hands and said, I'm sorry, I, I, this dialogue of rage is, it's dangerous. It's, it's, it's more than not helpful, right? It's, it's, it's more than damaging to our community. It's, it's flat out dangerous. And I don't want to be part of that. And suddenly the environmentalist across the table and the forest service official across the table looked a whole lot more human because, you know, they, they had been targeted. Right. And, and so I think, um, in, in a weird way, it had a a really positive outcome for the community. I, I mean, I don't mean to suggest that it's all kumbaya. Everybody still disagrees. People have wildly divergent opinions about, the federal government and its role. And we're seeing it right now with the response to COVID. Um, I mean, I'm not suggesting at all that the partisanship and the politics and the, and our relationship as rural economies to the federal government has changed one bit. But what did change was the fact that we all kind of started to agree that maybe we could talk about those differences in a, in a civil way, in a, in a safe space um, that didn't, have to make it personal and it didn't have to make it threatening and it didn't have to ultimately threaten violence against one another. Thank mm-hmm. you.